If you want to come to a New Testament book and really get into the meat of what Jesus was and about, you'll need to get into this. Beginning verse 9, I'm reading through verse 14. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And here's the text, really, the, the um, heart of what I want to talk about. So that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Live a life that's worthy of the Lord. To please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to the glorious, to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now when Jesus saved us, He took a big risk. Somebody said, I believe it was Stuart Kennedy said, that Jesus is the greatest gambler that ever lived. He took a big risk because when He saved us, He gave us His name. You've heard this oft-told story probably a hundred times about the soldier who served in Alexander the Great's army. And he was undisciplined and unruly. And Alexander the Great would not allow a man in his army to be undisciplined and unruly. So he called him into his chambers. And the young man came. And Alexander the Great said, What is your name, soldier? And the man replied, My name is Alexander. That wasn't what Alexander the Great was anticipating. It took him back. And so he said, Tell me again, soldier, what is your name? And the soldier said, Sir, my name is Alexander. And Alexander the Great said, Then, soldier, either change your name or change your ways. A person's reputation is bound up in his name. And God imparts to us His name when we're saved. Israel is a name for God. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. So that Jesus stakes His reputation on how we act. No wonder the Bible keeps calling on us to live a life worthy of Him. No wonder the psalmist said, he leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. No wonder God is so concerned that we live a life consistent with the manner and the life of Jesus. You know what the goal of the Christian life is? The goal of the Christian life is the Christian life. It's not service or it's not activity. The goal of the Christian life is the Christian life. 
So the Apostle Paul said to the Galatian Christians, we continue to strive and to labor that Christ be formed in you. And Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans that we are predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that the goal of the Christian life is that Christ be formed in us. God is really, really concerned about the fact that we live a life worthy of His name. It means that what I do and I say is consistent with what He does and says. A life that is worthy of the Lord is a life that exhibits the attitude and the action of Jesus. A life that is worthy of Him is a life that is in concert with the life of Jesus in every way. Now did you know that, that, that what people learn about Jesus, they, they don't learn from some preacher's sermon. I hate to admit that. I don't care how many times you bring a person to church. They're not going to learn about Jesus. What they're going to learn about Jesus, most of it, it's not what the preacher's sermon it's so easy to turn off a preacher, isn't it? Some of you have a lot of experience at it. I can look out on Sunday morning, I can see you turning me on. And I'm not sure that some people really believe what the preacher says in the first place. Like the preacher's kid that said one noon, he said, Daddy, did you really mean what you said this morning or were you just preaching a sermon? I'm not sure that folks really believe what the preacher says. Well, if folks don't learn about Jesus from what the preacher says in a sermon, where do, they, where do they get what they know about Jesus? They get it from you. What most people know about Jesus, they got from professing Christians. Now, they didn't get, from, get it from what you do or what you say on Sunday morning. They, got, they, they get what they know about Jesus from what they see in you in the rest of the week, what they see on Monday and Tuesday. And so no wonder the Scripture is constantly calling for us to allow our lives to exhibit the life of Jesus Christ. Now, behind every life that is lived worthy of His name is one controlling purpose. That's the key. I suppose that everything, every life that's successful in any realm has one controlling purpose. That's true in business. That's true in athletics. Behind every life that's successful is one controlling purpose. The Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do. You remember when Jesus called His disciples, it says that they left their boats and their nets and they followed Him. In other words, following Jesus means that you can't continue with boats and nets and sometimes even family. Those things have to be left aside. And there is one controlling purpose. Jesus understood that and He said, I've come to do Thy will, O Father. Now the one controlling purpose that is behind a life that is lived worthy of the Lord is found in verse 9, verse 10. And that is that we please Him in all respects. So that behind the life that is lived worthy of a Lord is the desire to please Him in all respects. It's the attitude of a slave that's just bound up in his desire to please his master. And it's not just the idea of understanding what my master wants me to do and then I do it. It's 
It's the desire, such a great desire to please my master that I anticipate what he wants and I do it. And there's a big difference. Let's suppose you left the house this morning and, or, or you leave the house in the morning and you say to your daughter, um, I want you to clean your room today. Occasionally that happens. And, and, and you, say, you say, now when I get home this afternoon, I want this room to be clean. So your daughter gets up and she's thinking in the back of her mind, and her mind is this thing, well, the command is to clean my room. So she gets in there and she cleans her room. And sometimes this happens. Not often, but occasionally she says, now, I wonder what will please mother or dad more than anything in the world. Well, I, I bet if I washed all the dishes <clears throat> and uh, cleaned the kitchen and cleaned the bathrooms, I bet that just please them. And so she not only cleans the room, but she cleans the kitchen and the bathroom and the house. And when you get home, after you kind of revive, you know, you faint there first, but after you kind of revive, you, you, say, you say to your daughter, that's just so, that's such, that pleases me. You, you're so wonderful. You not only did what I asked you to do, but you anticipated what would please me, and that's what you did. That's what Paul is talking about here. An attitude that is so wrapped up in pleasing the Lord that it anticipates what will please Him and does it. Now, what is the one compelling motive that motivates everything you do? Is it your desire to please Him? Do you have this overwhelming, compelling desire to please Him in everything? Is that the one motive that motivates your behavior? Or what if, what if sometime you had some questionable decision? How do you come, how do you arrive at what you're going to do? Is it what, you, what makes you feel better or what other people will say? Or, or, or when there's a questionable decision, do you make your choice and do you decide to do what pleases him the most as you anticipated? That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He's talking about that the life that is lived worthy of the Lord has one compelling proposition behind it, and that is, I want to please Jesus. Now, I want to say two things about this, this life lived worthy of the Lord. First of all, it's a very practical life. Practical life. Now, beginning in verses 9 and 10, verse 10, there are four prepositional phrases, and each one of these phrases describes an ingredient of a worthy life. Now let me say something about a prepositional phrase. If you took baby Greek in seminary or college, you'll know that the chief characteristic of a prepositional phrase is that it has continuous action. It's action that, that continues to increase and grows. It's not something that's done once. It's something that just keeps on happening and it keeps on being. So that there are four prepositional phrases that can describe a worthy life. The first is bearing fruit in every good work. Continuously bearing fruit in every good work. Now suppose you could uh, develop a tree that bears every kind of fruit on it all the time. Boy, you'd have something to market, wouldn't you? You find me a fruit tree that'll bear every kind of fruit on it and it just keeps on bearing it. So that all I got to do, if I want me a peach today, I just go out to this one tree and I just pluck me a peach off of it. I mean, anytime 
rain or shine, summer or winter, it has every kind of fruit on it, and, and it's always there. guy told me after the early service, he said, I saw a tree one time that had four kinds of fruit on it. I'm talking about every kind. Banana and peach and pear and apple and everything on that same tree. All the time, fruit bearing. Now what Jesus is saying is, there's a life that is worthy of Him he said, I'm going to make you the most astounding tree you can ever imagine. I'm going to make you so that you bear every kind of fruit in every area of life continually. You say, well, there's some area of my life where, where I'm bearing fruit. And, you know, no, it's not a lopsided life. In every area of life, bearing fruit continually. Now, we've already discovered in this church, from this pulpit, what fruit is in the New Testament. Fruit, is, fruit in the New Testament is just the outward manifestation of the inner nature or life. Now what's this? What Paul is saying is this. He's saying that a worthy life is a life that in every area, your social life, your business life, your devotional life, your recreational life, in every area of your life, you're bearing, you're displaying, you're giving evidence of the life the nature of Jesus Christ all the time. Astounding, isn't it? All right? He said there's a second ingredient, second participle of this worthy life. It is a life that grows in its knowledge of God. There is continual growth in one's knowledge of God. Let me ask you a question. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Do you know more of God today than you did last month, last year? Is there this continual growth in the knowledge of God? Now that word um, knowledge there is an interesting word. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a combination of words. It means it's epigenosis and it means to know inside out. Now there's some of you who know God from the outside. Let me ask you a question. How many of you, uh, you know, somebody come up to you and you say, uh, have, you, do you, have you ever seen the parsonage of the First Baptist Church? And they say, yeah, I've seen the parsonage of the First Baptist Church. Is that, it's over there on Live Oak. Yeah, second of, uh, on the corner of 21st and Live Oak. It, you mean that red brick building has those four white columns on it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I've seen I know that. I know where the parsonage of the First Baptist Church is. It's where the preacher lives. I, I know that. I've seen that. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever seen the inside of the parsonage first bat? Lift your hand if you have. All right, about half of you. You've seen the inside of the parsonage first? Let me, now, if you want to come over and look on the inside, give me a couple of weeks' notice, and I'll have it fixed up for you. Some of you have seen the outside of the parsonage of the First Baptist Church. It's a red brick building. It has four white columns, but not all of you have seen the inside of it. Let me tell you something. Just about everybody here this morning has seen God from the outside. You know about Jesus. You've heard about Him since you were a child. You, you've heard sermons on Him, Sunday school lessons taught about Him. You, you, you know Jesus from the outside. Some of you don't have the slightest clue as to what He's like on the inside. Epikonosis. Now Jesus never had favorites, but He did have intimates. And what the Apostle Paul was saying is, I want to know Him from the inside, intimately. And a life that is worthy of the Lord is a life where you don't just have a nodding acquaintance of Christ. You know Him from the inside. Increasingly, you know Him. 
Then there's the third participle. He, is, he says in verse 11 that he is continually strengthened according to his glorious might. Continuously strengthened. Now there's some people who believe that the Christian life is like this, that when you get saved, God gives you a big shove. And you just kind of roll on in that shove, kind of like a, a soapbox derby, you've seen those? So I come down and I get saved and God gives me a big shove and I'm off in a cloud of dust. Man, I'm shouting and praising the Lord and lifting my hands. And I come to church every time the door is open. I'm on the front seat and I'm even come to prayer meeting, believe it or not. I mean, I'm just caught up in the inspiration and the excitement. God just gives me a big shove and I just roll on and get, then I get slower and slower and slower and finally I just quit. That sound like anybody you know. And some people just stay quit until, you know, some revival comes along and they get another shove or they go off down to Falls Creek or they like some preacher and they get his tapes and they listen to them enough and they get another shove and they go in the inspiration of that shove until that wears out. And not, not so the apostle. He says that this life that is worthy of the Lord is continually strengthened. Now it's notice that it is not by His strength or with His power. It is according to His power. And there's a world of difference. And what he's saying is this, that a worthy life is a life that is continually strengthened in the manner that is consistent with the way God deals with His world so that you deal with your world in the same way God deals with it, with, according to the same glorious power, increasing. You know anybody like that? You say, well, Billy Graham's like that. I met a missionary one time and pastored out in the jungle. He's like that. And occasionally some pastor's like that. And what he's talking about is that, is so we can, you know, he gives us this might and this glorious power so that we can have these great preachers wrong again. This is so practical. The worthy life is a practical life. And he says that he strengthens us continually for two, for two reasons, so that we might have patience and steadfastness. You tell me anything more practical than that. Now patience is the ability to bear under adverse circumstances. It's the ability to stay there when the staying there is tough. And so that worthy life is a life that's strengthened so that one can stay under adverse circumstances and remain there, faithful and constant. But steadfastness is remaining under obnoxious people. Know anybody like that? They irritate you, drive you crazy, obnoxious. What you'd like to do? Oh, what you'd like to do? Steadfastness is the ability to bear up under critical people, condemning people, obnoxious people with the spirit and the attitude of Jesus Himself. There's nothing anything more practical than that. All right, there's a fourth. There's a fourth participle. It is what He calls continuous thanksgiving. Now I've noticed that thanksgiving and gratitude can't be programmed. Now you can, you can help people to know to say thank you and that kind of thing, but I mean to really be grateful and to have an attitude of thanksgiving and gratitude, you know that's not something you can 
That's not a discipline, really. But I have also noticed that you let a person, that person may be a brand new Christian. He may be a total rookie. He, he doesn't, he's not been taught much. He doesn't know much about the Bible. But you let God touch his life. And the first thing that results when God touches his life is this spontaneous praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. You just let God touch his life. And what he does is just... He just explodes with thanksgiving and gratitude. And he's able to be thankful in everything because he understands that, he just senses that God rules and overrules everything because he's sovereign. And so out of his heart, spontaneously, he's grateful. That's a practical life. And you say to me, well, preacher, what you've described is not possible. Nobody can live like that. Wrong again. There is a principle we learned in this church, and I hope you remember it. If you haven't, write it down in the, in the margin. The principle is this, that whatever God commands, His command is at the same time His promise. That's a spiritual principle you should never forget. So whatever God commands you to do, that is at the same time His promise that you can. And He doesn't lie. So we're going to take this command, that is, that we live a life that is worthy of the Lord, that is, that we exhibit the life, attitude, actions of Jesus in this body. We, we take that as a command, and we're going to walk around on the back side of that command, and what we find there is God's Word that we can, for He never says, tells us to do anything that He doesn't promise us at the same time we can. Now this passage is full of purpose clauses. And purpose clauses are these. Purpose clause is, a, is something that enables you to do something else. In other words... We are told something in order that it might produce something. And there is an action that is to produce a reaction. And the, and the action of verse 9 produces the reaction of verse 10. So what he tells us in verse 9 enables us to do what is told in verse 10 because there's a purpose clause that separates the two verses. Now what we're told in verse 10 is to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And verse 9 gives us the way or the, the action that guarantees that that will happen. Alright, here it is. You ready for this? The way to live, the way for a worthy life to be possible is that you come to an understanding, a knowledge full knowledge of His will. Now, if you come to a full knowledge of His will, the result of that will be you'll live a life worthy of His name. Now, what we need to do is to define what the term means, knowledge of His will. Anytime you find that in the New Testament, it is never, never associated with an intellectual grasp of truth. It is not head knowledge. What it is, is knowledge of experience. It's the knowing of experience. So what he's saying is that the way that a person can live a life worthy of the Lord is that he comes to experience 
fully God's will. Now, how do you experience the will of God? You experience the will of God by doing the will of God. So what he's talking about here is absolute obedience to the will of God. Now, when you're full of something, you don't have room for anything else. Fully obedient to the will of God. Now, there are two wills in this place this morning. Some of you are doing your will fully. And some of you are doing His will fully. A life, if it's possible to live a life worthy of the Lord, it's this way, that you submit totally in obedience to the will of God revealed. It means absolute submission to the will of God. In other words, it's tantamount to making your last decision. Now listen to me. Would you like to make one decision this morning that will be the last decision you'll ever make? Are you, do you get kind of tired of having to make decisions all the time and you're under the stress and of that? Did you know that you can make a decision this morning that will be the last decision you'll ever make? You know what it is? You ready for this? The last decision you will ever make, if you make it's this, that you will make no more decisions. Okay? So, I make a decision this morning that I'm not going to make another decision for the rest of my life. That means that I can know 20 years from now what I'm going to be doing. I'm decided I'm going to make my last decision, and that last decision is that I'm not going to make any more decisions. There are not going to be two wills in the universe of my life anymore. The only thing that I'm going to do is I'm just going to respond to the will of God for the rest of my life. That's the decision. I'm going to wait until God reveals His will to me and then I'm going to do it. That's the decision I make. And you say, well, what if you don't know what His will is? Then you don't do anything. Because I'm absolutely convinced, I, I, I'm, I'm growing, I'm, I'm getting a deeper conviction of this all along. Will you listen to me? If you make a decision this morning that you're going to absolutely abandon yourself in obedience to the will, revealed will of God for the rest of your life, God will let you know His will in every situation of life just at the right time just at the right time. Now you may have to wait a while and that's kind of painful. And you may not can do something on the spur of the moment like you're doing now and most of the time it's wrong. But if you're willing to wait on the will of God to be revealed, He'll reveal that will so you make no more decisions. You just do what God tells you to do. Anybody want to make the last decision they've ever made? Some of you have read some books by F.B. Meyer, great preacher in the first part of the century in England. This is what he said one night. He's walking out in the, in the hills and he was wrestling with this very thing. I'll read this and I'm through. He said, My father, if there is one soul more than another within the circle of these hills who needs the gift of Pentecost, it's I. I want the work and the will of the Holy Spirit. 
but I do not know how to receive Him. And I'm too weary to think or feel or pray intensely. At which, says Dr. Meyer, an inner voice spoke, as you took forgiveness from the hand of the dying Christ, take the Holy Ghost from the hand of the living Christ and reckon that the gift is thine by faith that is utterly indifferent to the presence or absence of resultant joy. According to thy faith, so shall it be to thee. And to this response, to this the response of his soul was, Lord, as I breathe in this whiff of warm night air, so I breathe into every part of me thy blessed Holy Spirit. I felt no hand laid on my head, and there was no lambent flame. There was no rushing sound from heaven, but by faith, without emotion, without excitement, I took for the first time and I have kept on taking ever since. Listen to me carefully. What would happen in this world this morning if everybody in this room, young and old, made one last decision? And that decision was that he was going to be from this day on absolutely unequivocally, totally obedient to the will of God and he wasn't going to do anything until he knew that will. We'd be having people who are living worthy lives instead of all this unworthiness. Let's pray together. Father, grant us to make one final decision to be obedient to the revealed will of God and not do anything until we know it, trusting that when we live like that, you'll close the door before we make a mistake. Oh, Lord, for a life that knows Jesus inside out, that bears fruit in every aspect, that is strengthened for patience and endurance, forever grateful, oh, for a life worthy of His name. This is my prayer for this place, for this pulpit, for this person, in Jesus' name.